Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk on Drives. I am Jim Finiak, and I am going to be alone this particular episode. Neil Corbett was unable to participate in this recording, but this is, again, Rock Talk on Drives, our podcast series dedicated to all things drives, variable frequency drives and concepts, topics, and things that pertain to it. We've done a number of of different topics over the past from installation best practices, medium voltage versus low voltage, our MCC celebration for a big milestone. And this episode is dedicated entirely to a, a very common buzzword that's out there, a very important theme that's out there in the industry as well. And we'll we'll talk about how it pertains to drives. I have two guest speakers here today. We will be talking about sustainability. So today with me, we've got Corinne Pellish and Josh Olive. So welcome to the podcast and uh, feel free to introduce yourselves. Thanks, Jim. We're uh, very excited to be here. And I would like to say, what a powerful podcast. (laughs) 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 So Corinne Pellish, my formal title with Rockwell is Sustainability Partnership and Program Manager. I've been lucky enough to work at Rockwell for the last over six years now. A majority of my time has been spent supporting clients, primarily in the heavy industry space across the country. So I spent a little bit of time in Oregon working with pulp and paper companies and forest products organizations, and then spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania working with steel manufacturers. I currently reside in Denver, Colorado, try to live to the best of my ability, a, a sustainable lifestyle within reason, but love having the opportunity to impact the world globally with technology in this front. So glad to be here. Great. Thanks for thanks for joining us, yeah, Corinne. Absolutely. And Josh, how about you? Yeah, Josh Olive. I'm a business manager here for Rockwell in North America, focused on our motor control portfolio. Been with the company for 27 years. I'm hard to believe it's been that long, but throughout my career, I've been working with you know customers in various roles, helping to meet their application needs when it comes to motor control. Great. Well, thank you. Both of you bring um, a wealth of of knowledge, experience, and a strong resumes here to be good contributors on this topic of sustainability. And myself, having been in with Rockwell for quite a while, I've, this comes up from time to time, both internally, externally. You know, I use the phrase buzzword to kick things off, but let's maybe start with a definition of what is sustainability with its commonality nowadays. What does it mean? And can you give some definitions? Yes. And Jim, I'm so thankful that we are starting off this way because if we were to ask a room of 50 people what the word sustainability means, we may get 50 different answers. And so I think it's really important to find that common ground in the kind of just that that overall, where what does this mean? And, and then with the lens of manufacturing and power, how does this directly translate into exactly what our audience wants to hear about. So rather than say, Corinne, what's your perspective? I want to pull in a couple definitions formally. And so the UN or United Nations has defined sustainability as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And I really like that definition for a number of reasons, right? It really thinks about generations coming after us. And it thinks about, hey, we still understand we need to be self-sufficient and and production um, and manufacturing for existing people on earth, but then also how are we thinking beyond that? And then when we do look at the lens around sustainable manufacturing, 
The U.S. EPA defines that as the creation of manufactured products through economically sound processes that minimize negative environmental impacts while conserving energy and natural resources. So you're going to start to hear a lot about energy. You're going to start to hear a lot about environmental impacts. And so as we start to dive into some of those topics, there's a couple other key definitions that you may hear as the word sustainability comes up more and more. One thing that most people have heard is emissions comes up frequently when we talk about sustainability, when we talk about manufacturing, especially heavy industries, right? A lot of people look at smokestacks and may not know what is in those smokestacks. It may be actually water vapor or it may be some level of controlled emissions. So when we say emissions, sometimes people say greenhouse gas emissions or GHG. It's defined by the EPA as gases that trap heat in the atmosphere. Most folks think about emissions as carbon dioxide. It's the most well-known greenhouse gas emission, but also methane, nitrous oxide, and fluorinated gases fill up that entire space of greenhouse gas emissions. You'll hear a lot of people refer to emissions as carbon. So it's really just their synonyms, even though there's more than carbon that, that essentially fills the atmosphere. So carbon dioxide, definitely a big one. I do want to mention methane comes up frequently. I always like to give people a little chuckle. That is primarily generated by cow farts and burps, which is interesting, right? <laughs> and so just a little fun fact there. That's why there's a lot of conversation around how do we better support the beef industry today. Okay, a couple other terms you might hear are scope one, scope two, and scope three. And so as we really talk about the environmental aspect of sustainability, as this ties into emissions and in our impact on the natural world, scope one are greenhouse gas emissions that companies make directly. So when you think about uh, a steel mill, for example, it's within their production facility, what are their direct emissions? And so that may be from the blast furnace, from the pickle line, et cetera, but where where exactly does that fall within the facility? Scope two is the indirect impact from companies. So companies need um, to purchase energy unless they have on-site energy production. So think electricity. So to power a plant, to cool a building, and that falls all under the indirect emissions. And so that's actually a bigger scope than you may think, right? Because often we do just think about the plant itself, but scope two really bridges it outside of the, the immediate impact of the facility. And then scope three is where things get really complicated. And so scope three is extremely difficult to quantify. It is all of the emissions indirectly associated with an organization, both upstream and downstream emissions. So one of the, the areas that I like to think about in terms of examples here are a can of beer. I think everyone on this podcast is a fan of beer. I know we've had previous <laughs> conversations about it. Absolutely. And so everything that sources to make the beverage itself, everything that is sourced to make the can itself, so if it's aluminum, and then all the way down to the end of life of that product. So does that beer can end up on the side of the road? Does it end up in a recycling facility? So asking an organization to track their entire value chain upstream and downstream. So again, you can see where it gets very, very complex. A couple other things to note. So sustainability in terms of investors means environmental, social, or govern governance. So you'll hear the term ESG. And then also energy, which 
generically speaking, can be very vague. (laughs) And so in terms of our conversation today, we will refer to it as wages or water, air, gas, electric, and steam. So hopefully that gives us a good baseline. No, that's really helpful. And I think over the years, I mean, 10, 12 years ago, there were a lot of initiatives, government-sponsored projects that led companies down a path of sustainability through incentives that are out there. And we tend to get waves of these kinds of initiatives from companies. But it also feels like, because of the requirement around those programs, that there may be, at a minimum, a perceived dichotomy of either I can be sustainable or I can be profitable. Yes. So I'm kind of answering or asking this question on behalf of any skeptics out there. Is sustainability actually good for business? Yes. And I love, big question. I love, love, love this question. So I'm going to approach this answer from kind of the investor standpoint. So we'll look at that macro trend and then we'll look at some of the examples that we would see both improvement on the bottom line as well as impact, good impact for the environment and how those tie together for, for great business models. So Perk Center, most companies now recognize that ESG, so environmental, social, and governance, or sustainability metrics are linked to performance and not just compliance. So it's, it's fascinating that now this is kind of the broader spectrum expectation from organizations of hey, absolutely, this is for compliance-driven reasons, Jim, like you were mentioning, but is it good for business? And so one of the aspects of business are investors, right? How do you look in the market? And in 2021, Gardner shared that organizations with poor corporate sustainability disclosures may be seen as risky investment propositions. CFOs need a robust framework to integrate ESG standards within a company's financial brand. And today, 85% of investors consider ESG factors in their investments in 2020. So we're starting to see this trend on that standpoint. But when we also look at a company itself in terms of how do you measure and, quote, grade an organization, not just from their bottom line, rather looking at the triple bottom line of people, profit, and planet. And so this idea of triple bottom line for businesses incorporates What does it mean to build this broader impact of, yes, you're profitable, but you also are focusing on the the social aspect of the communities in which you live and work and the impact on the planet for your operation as an organization? So let me dive into some specifics. When we talk about a safe environment or the social part of ESG, there are a variety of different ways we can talk about it. In the Rockwell lens, we talk frequently about a place where people can and want to do their best work. And that is critical for employee retention and attraction. So if we think about the next generation of leaders, how do we best provide a space where people feel psychologically safe at the workplace? People feel physically safe in the manufacturing areas. So whether that's safety services, safety products, et cetera, how do we create that right culture where people come first rather than profit? But basically, safety doesn't come in place of profit, right? And so Rockwell has gone through that journey of of educating the manufacturing space of you can be safe and productive at the same time. And that's the similar story with with sustainability. In In a very tangible, quantifiable way with money, when we think about reducing energy consumption, we think about 
how um, if you reduce any level of energy consumption, there is a direct correlation via an equation that the EPA has based on your region, location, et cetera, that directly ties to greenhouse gas emissions. So if you're reducing energy, you're reducing your emissions, and then in turn, you're reducing your cost of that energy. So your carbon footprint goes down, you save money. There's a direct correlation there. And I did want to share a a neat study that BlackRock just did, the investment firm, that 81% of globally representative selection of purposely driven companies with better ESG profiles outperformed their counterparts in 2020 despite a market downturn. So we are seeing this on a broad macro level of heightened focus on ESG is driving financial returns. That makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciate the, um, you know, the data points in there, the Rockwell perspective and examples there as well. And I, I think this continues to expand my mind of what we think about sustainability, but whether it's an asset on the plant floor or the human capital and the human part, you want everything to be running as efficiently as possible. And sometimes in order to do that, we need to think about the human factor, which often we focus mainly on that, which we can monitor, metric, and dashboard. So probably another topic for a different podcast, maybe, because this is Rock Talk on Drives after all. Why, Why are we talking about sustainability in a power control podcast? I think we alluded to it a little bit here. Another great question, Jim. So really it has to do with motor control. Uh, Motors are a key technology and a a key opportunity in making manufacturing more sustainable. And for the purposes of today's conversation, I'm going to focus on kind of the energy aspect that Corinne explained, which as she well stated, directly ties to greenhouse gas emissions and reduction of those emissions. So let's just say, imagine you're an engineer in a manufacturing plant and you've been you know, asked as, asked as part of your, your role to identify some opportunities to reduce energy and greenhouse gas emissions. You've got to identify some projects. Where do you start? And I think I would start with two words, and it's electric motors. And why is that? It's because if you look at manufacturing overall, 70% of electricity in manufacturing is consumed by electric motors. And then if you think about where some of the common applications are for electric motors, about 80% of motors are applied in either fans, pumps, or compressors, right? So those are all very good places to look for opportunities to reduce energy. Another way to just kind of understand your opportunities for energy reduction is if you have smart devices, smart motor control devices, like starters, like variable frequency drives, and those devices are connected via network into a control system, uh, oftentimes those devices, and, and certainly in Rockwell's portfolio, all of our motor control devices have energy data embedded in them. And if you then look at that data that's coming into your control system, it can help you identify where some of the biggest energy consumers are from your plant or from a machine level. Now, once you've identified those opportunities and where your motor control equipment is consuming the most energy, how would you reduce it? Well, there's a lot of you know, different ways that we can do this, and we certainly have domain experts that can help you, but I'll just kind of 
talk through a handful of ideas here that might help you get started. So one is idle time. We refer to it as something called O-E-E-E, which people are thinking that sounds like one too many E's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might be familiar with overall equipment effectiveness, which is a measure of how efficiently your equipment is being used to make product. So O-E-E-E, the extra E, is overall equipment energy effectiveness. It's uh, an idea that a couple of smart engineers in Rockwell patented that really talks about how efficiently you're using energy in your machines to make your product. So think about something like idle time. We had one manufacturer where it turned out they were running their equipment all of the time, but 40% of that time they were not making any product. Seems easy, but you know, we find these kind of opportunities all the time. Basically, what they did then is, you know, shut down that equipment when they're not making product and therefore saved about 40% energy and reduced their energy emissions 40% on that equipment. A second great place to look, which also ties to this idea of energy effectiveness, variable speed control. Think about the equipment where you know, I mentioned fans, pumps, compressors, you might be throttling a valve to control flow, but the motor's running at full speed all the time, full bore. If you don't have to run at full speed all the time, if you don't need 100% flow all the time, that's another great opportunity to reduce the speed, especially with something like centrifugal fans, pumps, and compressors. The power varies with the cube of the speed. So anytime you don't have to run at full speed, you can get great reduction in the energy uses, usage in your greenhouse gas. So I'll give one example here. We had a partner, Best Tech, who's an automation supplier that worked with a mine, and they worked with this mine to optimize their ventilation equipment. If you work in mining, you know that ventilation is, is really essential and you know, essential for workers' safety and the operation of the mine. So in this case, this mine in Canada, Best Tech, helped them to optimize their ventilation system and convert fixed speed, right, the motor that's running 100% speed all the time, to variable speed, and they reduced energy 30%. That equated to 3 million kilowatt hours and 540 tons of carbon monoxide per year. And talking about the triple bottom line, it resulted in $1.4 million of energy cost reduction per wow. year. Wow. It's amazing. Uh, that's a really good one. So it's going to be hard to top that. A couple more thoughts to share. One that I'm passionate about. It's, it's a product that I worked on for a number of years. Regenerative drives. And uh, I think the best way to articulate this is give another example. We have actually a couple of oil and gas suppliers that we worked with recently on a rod pump application. Sometimes we refer to it as as a pump jack. And in many of those installations, they've been using variable frequency drives, but they were using braking resistors to control the speed on the downstroke. And if you think about these pumps on the downstroke, gravity is tending to want to speed it up, but it's really important to control the speed of the pump to optimize the production. So in this case, the uh, oil supplier actually had a project 
to reduce their energy and thought there was an opportunity here. We did basically a pilot with them. And it turns out that they were able to reduce their energy usage by about 15% because the system's in regenerative mode all the time. They put the regenerative drives in, got rid of the braking resistors, which by the way, also helped them with their productivity because those resistors were a source of failure. And if the resistor went down, either the system would go down completely or their pump control wouldn't be optimized anymore because it wasn't controlling the downstroke. So another great example of, of triple bottom line. The fourth example here I'll give is to consider the motor technology itself. You know, there are more efficient AC motors out there on the market today. You know, there are still in heavy industries a number of DC motors, older DC motor technology, but AC motors are more efficient than DC motors by design. So there's an opportunity to go from AC to DC. There's also things like permanent magnet motors and synchronous reluctance motors, which also tend to have much higher efficiency. One simple example here, a paper mill converted a large piece of equipment from DC motors and drives to AC motors and drives. They were expecting about 8% energy savings in actuality, they realized 17%. Wow. And then good. kind of the last example I'll give here, something that I was reading about just recently, converting hydraulics to electric. In this case study, a company Marlin, they make food packaging equipment and they were running that machinery using hydraulics. They converted it to electric motors in variable frequency drive control using kinetics, servo drives, and power flex drives. And again, they were to, able to capture 40% energy savings on that machine. Significant savings. Very impressive. Absolutely. And I'd kind of put this in the sustainability low-hanging fruit, because I think for the most part, this is relatively easy to quantify and justify, because we're talking about relatively simple benchmarking that can be done today. If you have a smart device, as you mentioned, Josh, you can probably access your base level today and then you can make your modifications and very easily see this. So I, I love the, the perspective here. And I feel like we've been talking about this for years, but again, it still comes up from time to time, sort of to how you started that plant manager. Somebody has a goal for this upcoming fiscal year. They don't really know where to start. Years ago, there was these government assistance programs to help replace cross-the-line starters with VFDs. And we did cover that in a, a previous topic about the energy efficiency gained there from full load amps across the line starter to a soft start or a VFD. But how does the efficiency compare within the entire technology segment we'll call VFDs? Is there specific efficiency gains that can be made within that technology space? Yeah, good, good question, Jim. So we you know, you you mentioned some of the things that I went through and that Corinne has talked about is a lot of the low-hanging fruit. So when it comes to the selection or the design of the variable frequency drive itself, I'd say it's a smaller impact than some of the, you know, areas and examples that we just went through. However, it, it can make a difference over the lifetime of the equipment or the lifetime of, of the drive in this case. For Rockwell, our PowerFlex drives are certified to a standard called IEC 61800-9-2, which 
That's a European standard for determining the efficiency of drives. We meet the IE2 classification, which is actually the best category for efficiency in that standard. Compared to other manufacturers, PowerFlex drives are one of the most efficient on the market. And I'll just kind of give you an example of of how this translates to your manufacturing process. So let's say you've got a 100 kilowatt drive or 150 horsepower drive over 15 years running about 90% of the time annually. Let's say your energy cost is 10 cents a kilowatt hour. And if there's a 0.3 difference in the efficiency of the drive technology that you selected, that alone results in $3,900 in savings, which is pretty significant. I mean, that could go a long way towards the investment in the actual drive itself. Well, and then too, think about if there's many drives in a facility, right? There can be hundreds. Yeah, if not thousands in some of these facilities. You know, back to the 70% of electrical energy is consumed by motors out there. So that absolutely can add up. And not everything has to be procurement of of new hardware too. I like the ideas here as well of just utilizing some of the features that might be on board, whether it is if you have a VFD, find an optimal speed to run the application where you get the throughput you need, but with the optimal energy consumption, sort of the, hey, you've got a car, how do you make it run as efficient as possible without upgrading to the the hybrid or the the Tesla? <laughs> <laughs> that may be out there as well. And those those might not be right for everybody. So there's multiple ways to attack this, both with your current installation and... To Josh's earlier point, you know, we do embed this energy data into our VFDs. And so the goal being Rockwell's long-term goal with energy leveraging our smart devices is making energy a process variable. So it becomes part of this broader control system play where you're able to leverage the smart devices such as a variable frequency drive, motor control centers, et cetera, to be able to pull that energy data out, contextualize it with production, and then look at things like energy intensity per product. So there's some neat things that are to all of our points around leverage where you're at. Doesn't take, you know, these grandiose ideas of modernization always, sometimes, but not always. Yeah, no, absolutely. One thing I want to mention before we move on, just on that IEC standard. So both Rockwell and other suppliers publish that energy data. And we're I think we're going to supply the links here at the end of the podcast. So just keep that in mind that that's public data. That is good to find because, yeah, don't just take our word for it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we publish it out there as do others. Okay. So that, I think, addresses the optimization of our existing motor-driven equipment within a facility. How does motor control play into scope one emissions? And going back to scope one, that's our emissions that a company makes directly within the facility, company vehicles, or the emissions of a running boiler, for instance. So how does, how do we impact those? So in terms of scope one, you know, there, there is a, I like to call it a transformation occurring really kind of in, in the energy sector around greenhouse gas emissions and some of the technologies that are used to, let's say, generate power or energy. One of them is this idea of electrification. So uh, again, I'll give an example here, a project where a company, oil and gas company was using diesel 
driven equipment for their compressors, right? And if you think about diesel, those are direct scope one emissions directly into the environment. So they converted, actually many companies, I think, are in the process of converting that diesel-powered equipment to electrically driven equipment, which is more efficient overall and helps reduce that greenhouse gas emissions. In this case, these were diesel-driven compressors for a pipeline that were all converted to variable speed control, electric motor controlled compressors. So a couple other of the big trends we're seeing, one being carbon capture or carbon recycling. So a lot of people, you know, we think a lot about carbon capture and sequestration and this big shift that's occurring within oil and gas companies to become energy providers. And so when we look at where we need to go to meet net zero, which is a net zero emissions world, people also refer to it as decarbonization. So to meet a net zero world by 2050, which is what many organizations are making commitments towards, the estimate is that we will need 10,000 carbon capture facilities. And right now we have 47 carbon capture projects operating or planned globally so that we will continuously see that increase. And um, the big plug for, for power is that there are numerous fans and pumps in these facilities. So there will be an extreme demand for our power control equipment to help power these this big technology. Additionally, on the carbon recycling end of things, you know, when we when we really do think about scope one emissions, 20 some percent, I believe 22 percent of global CO2 emissions are attributed to heavy industries. So things like chemical, oil and gas, metals, mining, etc. And so a really neat case study is Rockwell actually partnered with ArcelorMittal, who's a global steel manufacturer. We partnered with them in their Belgium facility with a carbon recycling leader named Lanzatech to enable the capture and then revalue of the carbon from the emissions at Arcelor Steel Mill. So conventionally, when you think about lots of the processes of a steel mill, blast furnaces in and of themselves are probably one of the most wasteful parts when we think about emissions. And so Lanzatech has proprietary technology in which they tackle the problem of carbon by capturing it from the blast furnace, converting it to ethanol using their proprietary microbes that feed on the gases rather than sugar, when you think about a traditional fermentation process. And as a result, the carbon is then recycled into a valuable commodity. So it, it took the experts in the steel industry, it took the experts in, in carbon recycling, and then it took industrial automation providers like ourselves to be able to say, how do we best solve this big challenge? So if you're interested in learning more about that, we can also link the case study. It's a really neat circular economy, waste, energy play. That's really impressive. Definitely interesting. I hope that is not the future of our of our beer making industry to get their <laughs> their alcohol is off of the steel mills here that we find a way to sustainably make beer the traditional way. I would way agree there. with that. Yeah. But that's uh, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I would agree. I'm not sure I would want blast furnace beer, but <laughs> <laughs> um maybe that's a new craft line. I don't know. Yeah, imagine the marketing teams at the <laughs> yeah. bourbon plants that are struggling to keep pace. We're trying to figure out everything as well, but Anyway, yeah. So another really neat um, trend that we're seeing with on-site energy production are both hydrogen production and biogas production. So jumping into hydrogen first, 
you'll see that there are many different colors associated with hydrogen production. There's pink, there's blue, there's gray, there's green. And so really the ones that we see focused on from the Rockwell standpoint today are gray, blue, and green hydrogen. So gray hydrogen is traditional steam methane reforming process. Blue hydrogen is steam methane reforming with carbon capture tied to it. And green hydrogen is leveraging clean energy from renewable sources, such as, you know, a traditional solar array or a wind farm, and then putting water through an electrolyzer. And so you leverage motor control to pump ultra pure water into the electrolysis, basically play. And so you're pulling apart the hydrogen molecules and the oxygen molecules. So your only byproduct is oxygen. And then you keep, of course, the, the hydrogen for whatever makes sense for your facility. And so we're seeing many multinational organizations and national organizations look at how do we leverage on-site hydrogen production to be able to help with on-site energy production, leveraging less from our scope two resources as well. And so can you not always draw from the grid during high demand timeframes and leverage that on-site energy production as well. In regards to biogas, so many organizations also looking at potential ways to leverage their waste and turn that into something useful. And so one, we can't provide the name of the manufacturer, but they, they produce cereal. They designed, built, and commissioned an anaerobic digestion plant to generate energy from waste. So the, the process of anaerobic digestion converts commercial and industrial waste into on-site electricity, heat, and clean methane gas. So in this scenario, they're generating methane gas from oat husks as fuel for the cogeneration plant. So trying to leverage that waste in a new and inventive way. So in this type of application, the, the cleaned methane was stored, pressurized, and used to generate on-site power and heat. And then, of course, the surplus fed the grid, which is wonderful. And then you can also power whatever else you need on the, on the plant. So whether you're charging vehicles or other power equipment. But what this cereal manufacturer realized is that they were able to generate enough methane gas, so 1.5 megawatts worth of electricity were being produced, and that completely offset the plant's existing energy requirements. So it's wow. these fascinating stories of how do, you, how do we leverage technology in new ways, with new applications, with incredibly innovative ideas and roles of organizations to help provide these innovative solutions. One of the things that I think I've liked the most about working for Rockwell Automation over the years is our our role helping other companies realize these outcomes that they're looking for, whether it's improving their production, improving their product, their quality. But the sustainability piece always, it's hard not to take a little bit of credit or hang your hat on that at the end of the day when we're doing that work with these companies. So what is some of the ways that Rockwell Automation is taking this initiative ourselves internally? within our manufacturing, within our, our teams and our, our company? So Rockwell has a VP of sustainability, Tom O'Reilly, and he's working towards orchestrating a internal ecosystem. So one that supports our own manufacturing efforts, Jim, to your point. One that I'm a part of that supports how our technology applies in solving customer big problems. And then thirdly, how we best support our communities in which we live and work. And so if we look across ESG, you know, the communities aspect of it really fits more into the S 
end of things and how we're empowering our employees to volunteer, to give to volunteer organizations monetarily, et cetera. So we've got a new program called Rock in Action to empower our employees to go volunteer for organizations that tug their heartstrings and then also our STEM activities within the community space. Within the sustainable company aspect, we have committed to net zero in our scope one and scope two by 2030. And we have a very detailed roadmap that is being led from many internal stakeholders to drive sustainability more into our our operations as an organization. So more will be coming out about that publicly soon. And then we'll be working continuously on our scope three commitment. Rockwell, as many of you know, is very ethical in terms of our commitments that we make publicly. And so we're making sure that we're doing the right research. We're working with consultants on our scope three commitment to make sure that it is science-based, factual, and um, something that we're able to stand by as an organization. I also want to mention that a lot of the great work that my extended team is, is doing is building sustainability into our technology roadmap. So similar to how we're, we see energy data pre-built into our smart devices like variable frequency drives and motor control, in general, we're building that throughout our entire portfolio. And so you can expect a variety of new products, new additions, new anything to make our products, our services, our solutions more agile, more scalable, more modular to be able to fit these big global challenges that we have. And I will mention that Rockwell did a materiality assessment a couple of years ago in which we ask internal and external stakeholders about sustainability and what it means for Rockwell as a company to tackle this challenge and what it means for Rockwell to support clients as they tackle these issues. And one of the biggest things that was noted in that from both internal and these external stakeholders is that Rockwell has the right technology to help support these big complex challenges. And so really making sure that we are investing in these emerging markets like hydrogen, biogas, electrification, et cetera, and making sure that we are poised to help those organizations scale to make a big global impact. Oh, right on. I mean, that's it's pretty powerful to say the least to think about our role again, how many companies rely on Rockwell Automation technology to do what they do every day. So it really compounds. And I really appreciate too, hearing more about this holistic approach to sustainability. Whereas in the past, I think it's been passed down from leadership down to the lowest ranks of an organization and it manifests in, I need a a drive instead of a contactor. But thinking about all the different avenues, the different uh, ways that sustainability can impact the business, the environment, the people, this is really helpful. I've certainly learned quite a bit working on this particular podcast. So I appreciate both you, Corinne, and Josh, and participating, I guess, for our audience who is probably just either we're either repeated things that they've already known, or we've piqued their interest to have some more in-depth conversations of other ways that Rockwell Automation can help. What uh, what would you recommend? Maybe I'll uh, mention a couple of things to start, and then Corinne can add to it. You know, I think one of the biggest things is we have subject matter experts that understand motor control, that understand applications, and and even some of these emerging um, energy technologies that Corinne mentioned. So please, you know, reach out to your Rockwell Automation distributor or salesperson 
or subject matter expert, and, and we can help you get started. The other thing that I'll just mention again is, you know, the, the IEC data around the drive efficiency measurement results for both us and some other drive suppliers will share that as well. Love it. Great. Thank you. Feel free to check out the Rockwell Sustainability Report. It's a lot of our internal work and our external work supporting clients. Really, really great read just of the, the cool things folks are doing globally. And then don't forget in November this year, November every year, but this year, Rockwell Automation is hosting Automation Fair in Chicago, and there will be a big emphasis on sustainability and how manufacturing will tie in with sustainability and productivity in new ways. So check it out. Oh, great. Thank you again, Corinne and Josh. Appreciate you joining us. Well, me for this time. And on behalf of Neil Corbett and myself, thank you all for listening in. As always, we welcome any feedback, any requests for future topics to be submitted through, uh, I believe, the portal of your choice (laughs) as you consume this content. We will have a follow-up topic along the lines of sustainability here, where we will be bringing in one of our subject matter experts, uh, Robin Priestley, who is a solution consultant, who has a great deal of experience and knowledge as it pertains to motor control, motor control technology. So that will be our, our next episode. We hope to get that one out shortly thereafter. And I guess if anything, start asking questions of your own company, of what are you doing or what are we doing? If it's your company about this. I think there's some some pretty powerful reasons to pursue this, both on the benefit and the profit side, but even those companies that are maybe shying away from this out of either ignorance or rainy day will get around to this. I think it's pretty clear that eventually those days are, are coming. So again, Corinne, appreciate it. Josh, thank you so much for joining. This has been another episode of Rock Talk on Drives. Thank you all. Thank you.